While it might be the most epic battle scene ever, and the best thing is that it's true. It was the spring of 1329. Robert the Bruce, the, the Scottish noble who betrayed Mel Gibson, you remember him? He eventually had a change of heart and he led Scotland to freedom. And so Robert the Bruce, on his deathbed, made one last dying wish. His wish was that his heart would be removed, embalmed, and given to his best friend, James Douglas. Everyone say weird. Weird. So when King Robert died, they embalmed his heart, they placed it in a little container, and James Douglas, Lord Douglas, wore it around his heart. Okay, so a year later, Douglas is in battle against the Spanish Moors. The Scots found themselves, they are surrounded, and they're on the verge of utter defeat as the Moors close in for one final blow in an act that reinvigorated the Scots and completely changed the course of the battle, James Douglas takes the heart of King Robert out of the container, throws it into the advancing army, and yells to the Scots, go fight for the heart of your king. Epic. Go fight for the heart of your king. This weekend and next are special Sundays at Vertical Church because we are entering the battlefield of another year of ministry. These are the the Sundays where we launch a new year of ministry. And as we step up to September as a church, and as you step up to September as a Christian, and we set out to do everything the Lord would have us do this year, I think the message God has for us is go fight for the heart of your king. Open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. As you're turning there, let me set the stage. Israel's army is hiding in the caves after getting destroyed and defeated by the Philistines. Israel, God's people, had a king named Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul, without seeking God in prayer, foolishly declared war against the Philistines. And I say foolishly because of a few reasons. The first is found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 5, which says the Philistines are 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. That's not how you want your enemy army to be described, like the sand on the seashore. Saul has about 600 people with him, so that's a problem. The second thing that's a problem is when you hear Philistines, think iron. The Philistines were known for being master craftsmen at making weapons out of iron. And God's people, the Israelites, their weapons were made out of wood and rock and weaker metals. And so guys, you just gotta feel this. We're outnumbered, not by a little, by thousands. Our weapons crumble and crack against theirs. We just got destroyed in battle. So brutal was the beating that the Philistines actually took all of our weak weapons away. I don't think they were gonna use them. I think they're just rubbing our face in it. Look at this, chapter 13, verse 22. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So we're down to two swords. Saul has one, Jonathan has one. Oh, and one more thing, King Saul just fell into massive sin. 
Saul was supposed to wait for the prophet Samuel to show up to offer unto the Lord before going out into war. But in an act of shocking impatience and arrogance, Saul says, we don't need a prophet. We don't need any priest. I'll do it. And he makes the offering himself. And Saul, uh, Samuel shows up and says, what are you doing? And God tells Samuel, tell Saul, now his kingdom's gonna end. Do you feel now why we're hiding in the caves? We just got slaughtered. We're down to two swords. Our king just sinned so much that the prophet said, God said that the kingdom's gonna end. That's the context of 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's a dark day in Israel. What could go wrong has gone wrong. Now meet me in chapter 14, verse 1. When you're there, say there. Okay. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side but he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migrin. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Haijah, the son of Etiab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Verse four, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison or army, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bezez, the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Again, feel the text, we're hiding. We're probably cold, bloodied, grieving over our friends and family that we just watched get slaughtered. And Jonathan sees this and he says to his armor bearer, hey, I know where some Philistines are. Don't tell anyone, let's just go. And so they get to this bottom of a hill and scholars um, suggest that there's probably 50 Philistines at the top of this hill. Jonathan's at the bottom of the hill. He sees a little path between two rocky crags. It's sketchy, but listen, it's an opportunity to make a move for the Lord. And if you're taking notes, write that down. Mission is an opportunity to make a move for the Lord. That's all this church is. I hope you know that. All this church is, is an opportunity to make a move for the Lord. Mission in your life. We're all here, guys, because we've seen an opportunity to make a move, to plant a church, to hopefully multiply churches, to make a move for the Lord. And it's sketchy, but we see a way. Jonathan sees a way, verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's the mission. Jonathan looks at his attendant, probably 12, 13 years old, and says to this kid, okay, let's just go. Let's go right now. We don't need to wait for anyone, just you and me and the Lord. Let's do this. 
And the, the reason I believe the Lord led us to this passage for this morning is because you guys were standing at the bottom of a new year. You're standing at the bottom of a new year, and we don't have a clue what's at the top of this hill. We don't know what's up there. But we know that what's ahead is going to require tons of faith and a whole lot of courage. I don't know about you, 2023 is going to hold, I know for you, something harder than you expect. And if you want to do anything great for the Lord, if our church wants to do anything great for the Lord, it's going to require Christ-exalting courage. We don't know what challenges and opportunities await for us, but we do know that we need courage right now. So this morning's passage shows us six characteristics of Christ-exalting courage. The first one's verse 6. Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Underline this. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Other translations say, perhaps the Lord will work for us. Maybe the Lord will help us. Now, call me what you want, but if there are 50 war-hungry Philistines up there, and you want me to go jump them with you, and we're sharing a sword, I'm going to need more than a maybe. I'm going to need better than a perhaps. I'm going to need you to say, dude, I just got a word from the Lord. He told us we're going to go and take those guys. It's not what he says. He says, verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, here comes the concrete foundation for courage. Four, ground clause. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Guys, for vertical church to be crazy courageous, we need to stake it all on God's promise to save with or without us. Newsflash, God doesn't need vertical church, amen. This city doesn't need this church, amen. Guys, when we feel that, that we are the savior of no one, when we feel that we are utterly dispensable to the cause of Christ in this generation, that frees us up to risk it all, to charge whatever hill the Lord puts in front of us. The reason Jonathan had the courage to go up, to charge the hill, to take them all on, just me and you, is because he had a deep sense of the unstoppable sovereignty of God. He knew in his bones, hey, God is for his people. God will save his people. He may do it through a thousand Israelites, or he might just do it through me and you. But either way, he's going to do it. Either way, we have a guaranteed God win, so charge! The sovereignty, the confidence in sovereignty frees you up. Have you ever watched a scary movie for the second time when someone in the room is watching it for the first time? It's a different experience, right? If my wife and I are watching a scary movie, I've already seen it. She's all nervous and she's anxious and she's pulling the blanket up over her eyes and I'm like, cool as a cucumber, honey, don't worry. She gets out. In fact, she's going to get with the guy with the ax, right? They're all going to, it's going to work out in the end. 
Listen, a scary movie ceases to be scary when you know how the movie ends. And life and ministry cease to be scary when you know how life and ministry ends. And we know how life and ministry ends. Revelation 7. The story ends with God saving all his people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's how the story ends. And John 6 says that not one person who is called by the Father will be lost. That's how the story ends. So truly the game is rigged. Truly the cheat code has been entered. We literally cannot lose because God literally cannot be stopped. And that frees us up. This is 2 Samuel 10, 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. That's the call this morning, guys. As we start a new year, as we square up to a new September, be of good courage and may the Lord do whatever the heck he wants to do in your life. Confidence in the unshakable sovereignty of God. Crazy courage frees us up to just go all in. God is going to win. It may feel like the church in America is beaten up and bruised and bloodied and broken down. And we know how this thing ends. Philippians 2, every knee, every tongue will bow and confess Jesus is Lord. Take the shot. Stop taking scared little layups. Have some fun. Back it up. The game is rigged. We have a guaranteed God win. And we find confidence and courage in the unshakable sovereignty of God. Clear? Okay, let's keep moving. Crazy courage comes from staking it all on God's promise to save with, or praise God, without us. Verse 6. Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few, verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Is anyone in here a verbal processor? Raise your hand if you're a verbal processor. Yeah, we got a bunch of them. All right, just see the grace of verbal processing in verse six. Jonathan says, hey, let's do this, man. Let's not tell anyone, just you and me, let's go. Verse seven, his assistant says, I'm with you heart and soul. And does that have any effect on Jonathan? Verse eight, then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over. For you to be crazy, courageous for Christ, you need to surround yourself with faith first, friends. For our church to be the kind of church God wants us to be, we need to be a faith-first people. I'm so thankful for the armor bearer the Lord has graced me with, my wife. And what makes Alex such a a gift to my soul is that she is faith-first. I remember when I first felt called to come plant this church. We were part of a beautiful church. We had a fruitful ministry. I went to Alex and I said, I think we're supposed to go back to Minnesota and plant a church. And what she didn't do is give me 23 reasons why that's an impractical idea. What she did do is paint a little painting of this verse, behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And guys, 
We see this all throughout scripture. Anyone who does anything great for God has someone who's faith first around them. Abraham keeps walking because God sends Melchizedek. Moses keeps leading because God sends Aaron. Paul keeps planting because God sends Barnabas. If you're going to do anything great for the glory of God, then you need to be surrounded with faith-first friends. Now, of course, God wants us to be wise and discerning and prayerful. But listen, if you think you have the gift of realism, like when your spouse or your child or your friend comes to you and they're excited about something God might be doing and you're just the self-appointed wet blanket onto their joy and faith and hope, stop that. Don't be like the Israelites standing outside the promised land who as soon as they heard there were giants in there were like, well, if the giants are 10 feet, that means their arm span must be six feet and our arm spans are only four feet. And don't be that. If you're like that, you would have perished. Instead, be like, be like Joshua, be like Caleb, just giants, schmiants. We have the Lord on us, on our side. Let's go, let's run, let's take it. What was that? That's faith first. God wants us, you guys, to be a faith first people, a people who with a knee-jerk reaction to go, I'm there, I'm in, let's run, let's go. We'll figure out the details as we go. You see, ch- churches tend to start very risky and then slide to safety. Let's resolve right now before the Lord as we enter a new year that if the elders come to us and say, hey, let's do this. We're like, I'm there. Faith first. We're not going to give five reasons why why it's more comfortable to live in the caves. Let's be a church that feels most safe when we're laying it most on the line for the Lord. Let me say it again. Let's feel most safe when we are laying all of it on the line for the Lord. When we're pressed and we're pricked, we bleed. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. This year, God wants us to stake it all on his promise to save with or without us. He wants you to surround yourself with faith first, friends. And now verse eight, Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men. And we will show ourselves to them, verse 9, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. We will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. Notice, Jonathan doesn't just blindly bulldoze into battle. He knows, he has to see, is the Lord in this? So he proposes a test. If the Philistines say, come up to us, God wants us to fight now. But if they say, we'll come down to you, we're not fighting today. I think a third characteristic of courage there is seek confirmation from the Lord. You know, when I read this, I thought of of Gideon's fleece test. You guys remember that? Judges chapter six. Gideon sets out a piece of fleece on the ground And he says, okay, if there's dew on it in the morning, but the grass around it is dry, I know God's going to save us. And if you remember, that angered God. So what's the difference between Gideon's test and Jonathan's test? The difference is this. Gideon already had a prophetic promise from God. 
and he was questioning the word of God. Jonathan had a hunch, and so he needs to seek affirmation from the Lord. So here's the question, guys. Who are we? Are we Jonathan with a hunch, or are we Gideon with a promise? We're Gideon. Hey, we don't just have a promise. We have all kinds of promises. What are the promises we have for Vertical Church? How about this? Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stand a chance. Guys, that's a promise. Take it to the bank. We've got Psalm 67, 7. God shall bless us that all the ends of the earth may fear his name. Christians can take that and cling to it. We've got Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Take it to the bank. We've got Acts 18.9, I am with you. No one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are mine. We have Acts 13.41, I'm doing a work in your day, a work you would not believe, even if someone explained it to you. Hold on to that. We have Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. We have Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We have Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. You guys, we've got 10,000 sovereignly secured promises behind us. We just need to honor God enough to happily hold him to his word. Here at Vertical... We've just decided flat out, we're gonna do only what God has promised to bless and nothing else. If we don't have guaranteed grace in this, we're not about it. If the Bible's not about it, we're not about it. If God's not about it, we're not about it. But if God's in it, let's do it. Let's go and let's honor him enough to just take him at his word. You know, so many churches are going after so many things that God has just never promised to give. You know this, God has never promised to make us a megachurch. God's never promised to build the brand, make a platform, make us famous. If we go after those things, we're gonna get slaughtered and we should. But if we just wanna glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ, buckle your chin strap, charge the hill, the infinite power of Christ is behind you. Seek confirmation from the Lord in his word and then happily hold him to it and you will find courage bubbling up. Back to Jonathan. He's still looking for a sign. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. Here's my question. Why? Why? I mean, I'm no military man. But isn't showing yourself, isn't stepping out maybe possibly like the worst way to do this? If there's 50 Philistines at the top of a mountain, we don't have any swords. They've got iron eye swords. And we're going to go and try to take them while sharing a stick. Wouldn't it make more sense, I don't know, surprise attack? 
Why step out? I think there's actually a subtle characteristic of courage here. Point four, step out so everyone can see God move. Starting a church is scary. I've lost a lot of sleep over this thing. And when I trace my fears and my anxieties back to the root cause, it comes down to, I just don't want to be embarrassed. You know, this is, it's all very public. And so if this thing crumbles, it'll be very public. And God says, that's the point. Listen, God doesn't do surprise attacks. God wants his glory public. And so he puts us into places where people can see him move. Again, we see this all throughout scripture. When Gideon shows up with his 32,000 to fight 120,000, what does God say? It's way too many. Bring it down to like 300 and then we'll ride. How about this? When Elijah squares up with the prophets of Baal and Mark Carmel, do you remember this? The challenge is which God will send down fire and consume a sacrifice. Elijah gets up and God's like, throw some water on it. Do it again. Do it again. He does it three times. Do it again until the, the offering is literally submerged underwater and God sends the fire and licks it up down with faithless, formulaic, well, the studies show, church, and into, let's get into the desperate place, the vulnerable place, the place where, God, if you don't show up, we're done. God calls his people to step out into the vulnerable place and the desperate place so that when he shows up, everyone sees it. And he is glorified as a result. I I used to say this a lot. I just want to keep saying it. Let's be the kind of church that will totally flop without Jesus. Let's be the kind of church where we'll never be able to write a book about how we did it. Or if we did, it would be one chapter, three words, God did it. End the book. Down with faithless, safe, conservative church planting. And let's go all in to the desperate place, the vulnerable place, the God, you're our plan A, we don't have a plan B place. And God will show up. Yahweh is most passionate about his glory. So this year, he's not only calling this church, he's calling you into the places, the vulnerable places, the desperate places. God loves to be unfairly disadvantaged so that when he shows up, everyone sees his glory. But stepping out is only the first step. Look back at verse 11. So both of them showed themselves (laughs) to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews, they're coming out of the holes when when they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Side note, this is an example of of Bible translators probably being a little too stiff and serious to catch the tone of the text. This is trash talk. It's not, come up, we will show you a thing. It's, come at us, bro. You want smoke? We got smoke. If you're not coming up here, we're coming down there. There's trash talk. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, hey, come up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel right now. We got to go. Verse 13, here's the next thing. Jonathan 
climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. He didn't just talk big talk. He didn't just show himself and go back in. Verse 13 says, now he's down on his hands and feet doing the hard work of actually doing it. That's our fifth point, stay the course. Don't quit. Do the work. Get down, get dirty, and stay the course. How easy it would have been for Jonathan to step out and after a couple giant stones skim his shoulder and a few arrows fly by for them to say, okay, on second thought, let's regroup. We'll go get some help. We'll we'll hit the summit tomorrow. He doesn't do that. He gets down and he just goes. And yet, guys, how easy it will be for us this year after a couple rocks of relational tension skim your shoulder or a couple stinging sentences fly by your head or some expectations are unmet and tumble down the hill, how easy it will be to want to retreat and regroup. You know, the Bible says very, very little about starting well, but it speaks a whole lot about finishing well. Why? because it's hard to stay the course. This year, statistically, 3,000 churches are going to be planted. Praise God. This year, statistically, 10,000 churches are going to close. It's hard to stay the course. On our first Sunday, September 23rd, 2018, a pastor drove all the way from Rochester to look me in the eyes and say, Chris, don't you ever quit. And then he walked away. Don't quit. It's the one thing we all need to hear regularly. Don't bail on God. Don't you dare flake out, especially in our generation. Stay in the course. It's the least sexy thing, but it's the most needed thing. Don't quit. This year, I just guarantee you, at some point, you will want to quit this church. You will want to leave. You want to stop serving, start sleeping in. You want to go to a different church that better caters to your comforts. You may want to quit Jesus this year. And God is saying as we kick off another year, stay the course. Keep going after me. God calls the few to do the much so that the many will be blessed. Is that clear? That's what we see in this text. Guys, all Israel's getting saved today, but it's only Jonathan and his armor bearer on their hands and feet actually doing the work. I can brag on so many of you who do so much for this church. Come to this building almost any hour of the week and there's someone here secretly serving the Lord. Why? So that many will be blessed. God calls the few to do the much so that the many will be blessed. At the end of this service, there's going to be a QR code. I'm going to ask you just if you want to ride with us, will you roll up your sleeves, get low, get dirty? Would you do the much so that the many will be blessed? But don't do it for a week. Stay the course. God calls the few to do the much so that the many will be blessed. And if we stay the course and actually do what God has placed on our hearts to do, Just look at the text, verse 14. At that first strike, 
which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, within as it were as a half arrow's length in the acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. That's what it says. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, quick, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. See what God's doing? He's using their own swords, the only swords to defeat them. And there was very great confusion. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into the battle. Here's the whole point, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Bethaven. Point six, you stay the course and you'll see the miracle. Listen, if you're willing to work hard, if you're willing to get on your hands and your knees this year, if you're willing to put forth the effort, God will bring forth the earthquake. You guys, this year, you're you're just gonna be doing your thing. You're gonna be going to school, going to work. At church here, we're gonna be preaching the gospel, minding our own business, worshiping Jesus, and then all of a sudden, a person's gonna get saved. Someone's gonna go to life, uh, death to life forever. Someone's gonna get baptized. Someone who's gonna gonna be set free from lifelong addiction. Someone who has filed for divorce is gonna decide, I wanna stay in the marriage. Someone who's gonna abort the baby is gonna choose life. Someone's gonna forgive their abuser. An immigrant family is gonna leave generations of paganism and start worshiping Jesus. A dark neighborhood is going to be penetrated by the gospel as a family carries in good news. Workplaces are going to be repurposed from making money to making much of Christ. Guys, if we will put forth the effort, God will bring forth the earthquake. So in your own life, And in the life of this church, today, in the spirit, let's just resolve. This year, stake it all on God's promise to save, with or without us. Surround yourself with faith-first friends. Seek confirmation in his word. Trust his promises. Step out so everyone can see God move. Stay the course, and you will see the miracle. William Borden was born in 1887 into an extremely wealthy family. His father owned a dairy business worth over 
a million dollars back then, that's $2 billion in today's currency. Early in Borden's life, he was saved through the ministry of D.L. Moody in Chicago. And as a high school graduation present, Borden's father gifted him with a trip around the world. And so after traveling through Asia, the Middle East, and then Europe, William wrote home and told his parents that he was going to be a missionary to a Muslim people group in China. When news went around that the heir of this massive family fortune was going to be a missionary, one paper wrote that he was throwing his life away. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. In obedience to his father's request, William came home and went to study at Yale University in 1905, but his zeal for the Lord did not waver. He began a Bible study on campus that grew to over 1,300 students meeting weekly. More than that, he founded the Yale Hope Mission, which cared for widows, orphans, and addicts. One student recalls, quote, our Bible studies divided up the class by numbering each student. Each person in the Bible study would take a number and then commit to reaching that person with the gospel. The names were gone over one by one, and the question asked, who will take this person? When it came to someone thought to be a hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted the responsibility. Then Borden's voice would be heard, put him down for me. Upon graduation, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers to go live among the Muslim people in China. As his ship left port, he wrote two more words in his Bible, no retreats. On his way to China, William stopped in Egypt to study Mandarin. While there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. They sent back his things to the States, and when his parents opened up the tattered Bible, underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he had written, no regrets. I know it feels like you're going to live forever. You're not. One day you're going to pass. Maybe it feels like this church is going to live forever. It's not. One day it's going to close its doors. And as people gather, as they remember your life, as they remember this church, guys, let these words be the banners branded in our Bibles. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Amen? Let's pray.